Welcome to Playmakers, the game industry podcast. Whether you work at a studio, publisher, service provider, or startup, this is the podcast that will give you all the information and entertainment you need to succeed in the game industry. Who am I? Just your friendly neighborhood veteran designer and producer, Jordan Blackman. In each episode of Playmakers, I go to work uncovering insights, tactics, and know-how from a wide range of game industry luminaries. My goal? To help you win the game of making games. Are you ready? Then let's begin. Welcome to another episode of your favorite, your whole family's favorite podcast. The world's favorite, some some might say. I would never say anything like that. That would be ridiculous. But nonetheless, you are back with Playmakers Podcast. And this week, we have a great interview with the one, the only, Colm Larkin. Now, before I tell you a little bit about Colm and what we talk about, I just want to remind you that if you like what we do on the show, if you love learning about the game industry from people on the trenches making amazing things happen, then you should probably subscribe. If you know someone who should be listening to this, you should probably, you know, share. And if you're a curmudgeon, you should probably just chill, you know? But whatever you feel like doing, I'm excited for you to be listening to this interview with Colm Larkin. Colm is a full-time programmer, awesome game designer. He has deep roots in board gaming. And what's amazing about Colm is that he went from doing something totally outside the game industry to kind of like, you know, starting off basically solo and and then becoming, you know, starting a partnership and building out a team. But starting off alone, he started making games and now he, you know, has a studio and a team and is making games full time. So he was able to make this transition from sort of like dreamer who had a job and and even a family to, you know, full time game developer, game designer, studio owner. And there's so many people who make that journey and get stuck along the way or never make it to the other side. And Colm has done it. Colm has been there. And so we are going to go through the roadmap of how he did it. He has made two titles so far with his studio, Gamebrinus, and that is the Guild of Dungeoneering, which is a great game. It's available on a bunch of platforms, but, you know, iPad is where I played it. And also Cardpocalypse, which is also available multi-platform. I played it also on iPad. It was a pretty early title for Apple Arcade. Great sense of style in their games, great sense of charm, great design, and you can definitely sense the kind of board gaming heritage that he comes from. So in this episode, we talk about how Colm made that transition from really dreamer to part-time to full-time studio owner. You know, what he had to go through psychologically in terms of dealing with issues like perfectionism, what helped him get that first game off the ground, how he knew when it was time to start expanding his team. So from going from really a solo to a partnership, to a bigger team and, and kind of how that process worked and, you know, the role of art and art style and animation on the creation process and how to kind of manage that as a small team and how to set yourself up for success when it comes to looking for a publisher. So a lot of great stuff in here for people who are making indie games or making small games or want to be making that journey to get there. I cannot recommend this interview enough. Ladies and gentlemen, let's get into it. The interview with Colm Larkin. Colm, welcome to Playmakers. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. It's great to have you. You know, you and I were, were just talking before we started recording about how we've been 
planning this for for how long? Uh, several years. Years. So that's on me, of course. Many years, actually. In the interim of our first chatting and now recording, yeah, we made a whole new project from scratch, released it, and then have moved on to something else. Right, on a whole new platform that didn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, quite a lot has changed, actually. Thank you for the patience. I'm, I'm glad to have you here. You know, we were originally connected through Brenda Romero, who was really impressed by you and your work, as, as am I. And yeah, it's great to be able to dive in with you. She's a local out here now. She's based in Galway. Oh, I didn't know that. And I'm in Dublin. So on either side of the island of Ireland. Well, you know, I'm going to recruit you to um, help me get her on the show at some point down the line. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try my best. I wanted to talk about your kind of journey, because I think what you've accomplished is what lots of people would love to do and try to do. And you've had incredible results, both in terms of the products and the business. So just to kind of kind of recap for folks, you started off kind of doing this part time, right? That's right. Yeah, I was working in uh, software engineering, not in games, and was trying to kind of make games on the side um, in my free time. And that transitioned to full time. So you know, giving up my career, essentially, um, solo, and then to a small team, and then up to where we are now, you were six people full time for the last four or five years now. But that's kind of the path it's taken over the last seven years. So you know, I think I think that's really the thing I'd like to dive in with you on is that journey and the steps along the way for people who might be in that position that you were in six, seven years ago, where you have a job, your passion is to make games, you know, you're doing stuff on the side, but I know how hard that transition can be. That was really hard. Yeah. And I, I meet a lot of people who are at that point, part-time game devs, first-time game devs, hobbyists sometime. And I would have identified myself as all of those things and, and really wanted to become a full-time game creator. So take me back there. Like, what were your days like? What was going through your mind when you were just starting out? You know, how were you managing your time? I'm 41 now. In, say, 2013, I was, I was 33. So I had a pretty established career in software. I was starting to make games kind of just more than a hobby. I'd always been interested in it, but I actually got stuck into it around that age and started like dedicating time to it. And um, so I started doing a thing called One Game a Month, which is kind of like a, a self-paced game jam. It was like a Twitter account, right? Yeah, yeah. And it became kind of a little uh, thing for a few years. So I actually started organizing a meetup here in Dublin where a few people would try and make a game a month. And, you know, across that whole year, I think I made six different games. So I didn't manage it every month. And most of those I basically spent a weekend on, you know. So uh, it was really just like a game jam where I had a place to bring it kind of afterwards. So it had a really nice combo of, you know, a deadline because that last weekend of the month was often when I did it because I wanted to have something to show and then a place to show it and get feedback. So we had a little meetup. We'd meet up in a, in a pub here in Dublin and a few people would have laptops and we'd show little, little janky games people made. And it was really impressive what some people made. One of my first prototypes is what became... Gilded Engineering. Now it's unrecognizable uh, in what I made in that weekend by myself. But I had a little bit of that germ of kind of putting down tiles and creating a, a dungeon. So that that kind of helped me actually complete things because I, I had been trying for, for years before that. I'd been trying to make... So I, I made the company name, for example, back in 2008, which was five years before that. But I, I hadn't managed to actually finish anything. So that year, 2013, with these one game a month and essentially game jams, I was more productive then in those few weekends than I had been for five years previously. It really helped energize me. So having that community and the timeline help you kind of go from this is something I want to do to this is something I'm actually 
doing. Yeah. And it gave me that confidence of, you know, I've actually finished some things. I kind of made myself a little personal portfolio of cool little prototypes, basically. None of them was that amazing. Um, but it really gave me confidence to say, well, actually, this is a, an effective way of working. Do you think it also kind of prepared you for making bigger games because you were kind of learning to be clever about what it takes to create games that can be finished? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and cutting things. Game jams are good training for that because you have limited time. I mean, they're also kind of famously good at like simulating the bad parts of, of game dev with like, you know, stay up all weekend. Um, I tended to do like work in a more normal way. So one game a month was on your own pace, you know, so it wasn't like a weekend long thing. Um, so I just work like a Sunday on it. That was much more sustainable. But yeah, finishing things <laughs> to a deadline, you got to cut stuff and you got to launch. And those are really, really important skills. And I've done a lot of that now since we've launched two professional uh, for sale on platform games since then as a company. Doing that little practice with smaller projects really, really helps. Are there any specific things that you remember learning or putting into place to help you get through those projects that are still things you think about when you're working on games today? I very much go for the idea of just hacking it in. Don't make it elegant. I'm a programmer by background. In terms of games, and especially game jams, you just want to get something working. It doesn't matter how like scalable or long-term, you know, good that code is. Um, you just need something working. And it's actually really good practice, I think, for games because even bigger projects where that would be valuable, you actually throw away so much code. You throw away so much finished, like working parts of games because you prototype and you play test and you see what works and you refine them. I think almost every company making games throws away a lot of product. So don't get too caught up on making it perfect. Just make it rough and playable. I think that's great advice. You know, we've we've heard that from a couple guests. Dave Roll, who's a casual game designer. Bernard Francois, who actually specializes in prototypes. They both had the same message as you, especially early on in the process. Not only don't worry, but actually Dave's, they, they aim to throw out code. Like they'll only program on platforms that they know won't be the final. Nice, yeah. I've heard of people doing like uh, Pico 8 as a, it's just like really lo-fi kind of prototyping. You can, you can make full-on games at it, but I've heard of people prototyping in that because it's too low fidelity to make you know their final game in you're forced to throw it away at a certain point and that's what you're saying right like don't be elegant at first because you're going to go back anyway yeah yeah and it gives you that nice feeling of progress instead of you know kind of and programmers are famous for this you know endlessly making something that isn't like viewable by the player you know really elegant back end code doesn't matter really if you don't have a game and sort of mentally it's like it gets you over the idea too of like perfectionism. That's the technical version, right? Of trying to make it perfect. And then ultimately it, it's perfect by never existing. Yeah. And, you know, it gets you over that real fear of, well, this isn't good enough. Because it's definitely, you know, you're making, especially at like game jam level games, but also as a first time creator trying to make that first professional game, it's not good enough when you look at what you're kind of up against. So AAA level has, you know, thousands of people working on it. Um, and like the really polished indies have, you know, 20 to 50 people working on it for several years. And it's just probably you by yourself or a couple of people working on your first project, let alone those bigger teams, you know, have iterated and done many games. So you will mentally compare yourself to them. And doing janky projects 
and sharing them. This is something I often talk about as well. Forcing yourself to get people to play them or just posting them online gets you over that fear of not comparing. Because sure, you don't compare, but very quickly, if you force yourself to do that, you realize it actually doesn't matter and you get really good feedback and it's very energizing. It makes sense. And it also seems like it would encourage you to focus on like, what's the big hook? What, what can I do that's super unique? Because that's you're going to have to hang the experience on that. Yeah, and that's a really good thing to focus on. You know, you can't compete, you know, thinking about small time hobbyist creator can't compete on like perfect graphics, you probably can't compete on content size of game, you know, hard to make features like, I don't know, hundreds of people playing in it online in an MMO, you're totally right, you need to go for something smaller and look for something novel. But also you, you're given that freedom. You can make something really crazy and weird that wouldn't wouldn't work for a bigger team. Totally. Now, here you are, you're making these small games, you're learning some skills, you're learning how to finish, and something in that experience must have inspired you to now make this real. Where were you between you're working on your job, you're doing this, how did you make that transition to the next step from there? In the course of 10 months, I'd made six little projects and that gave me some confidence. I actually went back to the first one and said, this one I quite liked. I'm going to spend, I remember at the time thinking three more months on it and wrap it up and like try and release it as a, a very small game. And very quickly, I started kind of developing in the open. I had a kind of a thread on this site called TigSource. Oh, I remember TigSource. Yeah. Derek, you? Yeah, exactly. And so that's Spelunky, right? Phil Fish, who's creating Fez, Minecraft. Um, Papers, Please all had this kind of thread on there. And I had read their threads where they would just kind of share playable builds of their game as they made them and talk about their process as well. Papers, Please one is especially good because it, it just jumps into such technical kind of, it's really cool. I started doing that with my uh, little game, Gilded Engineering, and I'd just share kind of my idea. And I always had a playable prototype because I was building in Flash. So I basically had an embeddable version of the game, kind of everything I'd made so far playable on my website. So I'd ask people for feedback there. And you know, I'd share on Twitter and I'd share in our local groups here in Ireland. And I'd bring my little build along to our meetups. So I started basically being very open about what I was creating and asking for feedback early on. And I kind of as a, not really a joke, but as I kind of challenged myself, taking part in this thing where it was just the month I started going, okay, I'm gonna go back to this project. And there was this challenge to try and make $1 off your game project. So at the time I put up a humble bundle widget which was just a, at the time, this is 2013, 14, 2013, a way to very easily take orders for your game, even if you don't have a game. And I basically just put that on my website and I said, pre-orders, I think I said it was $10. I'll get you a copy of the game when it's eventually out. No mention of when, no mention of where. At the time, you couldn't quite get on Steam so easily, that that was definitely the target. And kept, you know, sharing and talking about it. And actually, you know, by the end of the month, the first person I didn't know had bought it. This was on Humble Bundle? Yeah, so uh, really it was just on my on my website. So right there where you could play the the Flash version of the game at the time, right below it was just like a little widget. Now it was provided by Humble. I didn't realize that they offered that, okay. Yeah, you know, there's ways to take payments and stuff, but that was just a really easy one and it was game related. So it kind of took away a, a pain point. You know, I'm noticing this trend in your story where you've used a lot of kind of social, existing social constructs, whether it's the one game a month or, you know, TIG threads or this, you know, make a dollar thing. I don't know, maybe I, maybe I was looking for reasons to kind of kick my ass a little bit to force me to do things. So so taking money was a good example. It forced me to make a better web page with some marketing copy on it because I had to sell. So I had to write the little blurb like, what, well, what is this game? Like, it's not just this little 
hosted like really quite uh, low in content demo at the time. So it forced me to write it. And that's good because you, you practice that and you need that. And later on, you know, that meant I was contacting press at some point later, like six months later, I already had my blurb ready. So yeah, jumping in and try and doing things like that kind of forced me to do some of the work that sometimes is less fun early on when you're, you know, when you're a hobbyist, you have to do everything yourself. I don't know if it was the case for you, but I think for a lot of people who are trying to do this sort of thing, when you're alone, it's really hard to remember that it's real or it's only real if you think it's real, you know? So it's sort of ephemeral. And I can imagine that these sort of constructs help keep it real. Definitely, yeah. And there's other people talking about it. So, you know, things like one game a month, there's a sense of community. Yeah, you're not just alone, you know, in your bedroom or something. And it definitely, definitely helps uh, anchor it a bit. When you were making this first sale, had you left your job or were you still working full time? I was still working full time. So this was still at the time I was essentially devoting my Sundays to it. That was actually really hard. So later on, when I left my job, my wife and I got loads of our family time back. You know, not only did I go from one day, nominally Sunday, to up to, you know, five days a week working on my game project, we actually got our full weekend back together. You know, from a family point of view, that was massive for us. And it was actually a big relief. So I, was, I didn't feel like I was being pulled in, in lots of different ways and, you know, not doing enough for all the different things of my life. And I guess I was lucky that I was able to give up, you know, a paying job and essentially to, to work unpaid for a time. You know, being supported by my wife at the time. And then I got into an Irish government kind of scheme, kind of like an entrepreneurship training scheme that came with a stipend for six months. That really helped bridge kind of that time when I gave up my uh, engineering job. I'm curious if there was a goal you set for yourself, like, oh, I will, you know, make this transition full time when X, Y or Z or how, how did you know? Yeah, I didn't really know, but we were expecting our first baby. That was the big kind of uh oh, baby's coming in six months. There's no way I could, you know, do a risk like this then. And probably I could get this game finished six months full time, thinking about me, you know, working one day a week. That wasn't quite true. It took maybe a year and a half and it ended up with five people working on it for the last six months. So it was pretty far from true for six months by myself. But yeah, that was the big impetus was starting a family and feeling like I wouldn't be able to make the risky jump into trying to start my own project. Sort of a now or never moment. Yeah. And, you know, when I did that entrepreneurship um, scheme, there were several people in the same position just starting families. And it was kind of like, I better go for this now then, because otherwise it's just going to be too hard. Yeah. Are there any other kind of major challenges in this early phase before we, we kind of turn to finishing the game, kind of the publishing experience, some of those elements? Definitely finding the time was a huge challenge for me and being able to dedicate more time was fantastic. I, I know that's not possible in every case. Keeping your scope down, like try and make it almost laughably simple game. You know, I I started that project thinking, you know, I could I could put this together in three months. That's that's the right kind of scope. It may not be your dream project and that's okay. It's a first project. It's something cool. You want it to be novel and interesting and something you're excited about, but it doesn't need to be the game you've always dreamed of. Yeah, I think a lot of times if what's good about your idea is that it's huge, it's not that great of an idea. There's something wrong with the idea. That's a big red flag for, you know, kind of creating at this level as well. Totally. So was there anything you did to find the time? I mean, the, the thing I've noticed about time is that the lack of time is real, but also we can distract ourselves with so many things. There's so much time that we think we need to spend on stuff that is actually available. You know, and this is fast forwarding a little bit. 
Um, the thing that helped me the most in actually being productive was having less time available. When I became a parent, family time and time with my kids became really important and non-negotiable. It's different kind of before that. You can kind of work any hours you want. But once I was kind of, you know, being a parent and as the kids got older, you know, I had to pick kids up from school or drop them off or things like that. You know, actually for a time I was working a four day week and one day a week on Mondays was like my parenting day. Having less time for my business and my game creation actually helped me so much to focus. Um, it was much harder to put things off and to procrastinate and not work on things. And it was also very easy to work on things that weren't that useful. So I was much more focused when I had less time available. You know, I'd, I'd be thinking, it'd be like Thursday, and I'd be thinking, oh, I need to do this, because if I don't do it, then, you know, I don't work on Mondays, it's not going to be ready till Tuesday or Wednesday. And, you know, I told someone I'd have it ready this weekend, something like that. It's basically creating a constant stream of deadlines. There's an expression I heard, which is something like, if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. Yeah, that's very true. Or if you want something to get done, give it to a busy person. There you go. Yeah, and I think it, maybe it's a way of tricking myself into being that kind of person because I think naturally I'm not. So uh, yeah, like deadlines, even fake deadlines help me a lot. So probably just, you know, have a couple kids just for, for the extra deadlines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not flexible about times, which is good. I've heard that. Okay, so where do you want to go next in your journey? I mean, I'm imagining there was the phase of realizing, okay, I need to expand this team. This isn't going to be possible just as myself. What was that like? Yeah, so quite early on, so kind of when I said, okay, I'm going to make this, uh, you know, a real game. I'm going to sell it for money. And I put up that kind of pre-order widget. At the time, I didn't believe anyone would buy it until it was more close to being a real game. But surprisingly, people did. But at that time, I partnered with an artist, a guy in the end I, I know quite well, uh, Fred, who's now a partner in Gamrus. And that, you know, that changed everything in terms of like the perceived quality of the game we we're making. So before that, I was using just free art I had found, always with the intention of finding an artist and creating original art. But when, when I teamed up with Fred and we ended up with the hand-drawn style for Gilded Engineering, which is quite iconic in the end and quite unusual and stands out, and that really, really helped us. So, and it just matches so well with the style of the game. So you're drawing pretend maps on square graph paper. And it really kind of helped with the kind of, even a single screenshot of Gilded Engineering can evoke nostalgia feelings for anyone who's really kind of drawn like D&D maps on, on square paper. That was my first, you know, partnership. And that changed everything. Now, both of us were working at that time in just part-time. And Fred was still part-time when the game launched. And he was based in Australia at the time. I'm, I was here in Dublin. I would basically just kind of chat to him about what art needs I'd have. And then he'd go off on his own, for, you know, at some point and kind of dump a big pile of art on me. And then I'd be like, you know, this is great. Next time I'm working, I'm going to work through some of this. But I kind of have this backlog of art and I'd be slowly working it into my prototype. Um, so the fact that we were both part-time kind of worked fine because there was never any point where we needed to both work on the same thing or really iterate that way. So there's a there's a lot in there. I mean, I, I do want to just highlight the point that you made about the importance of art because I think, I think, and I'm curious your, your thoughts on this, but I think especially for any new brand, particularly, you know, with a smaller budget, art is having some unique style, some truly unique original look is the easiest way to really get attention and stand out and get noticed. And I've seen it time and time again, especially with games that have lower development budgets, that that be the thing that people notice. Yeah. And there's this massive amount of unused art styles available 
in the art world that can inspire you and you can make something no one's ever even really seen before in a game. And that's what I would encourage anyone to try. Try and look for something unusual. I remember how unique Limbo looked when it first came out. Yeah, or Super Hush. What's that, the shooter one that looked like an old cart, like a Disney cartoon? Like a classic Disney cartoon? Uh, Cuphead? Cuphead, yeah. Yeah, I think that was extremely labor intensive, but it certainly stood out. Limbo too, I think Limbo ended up being a pretty expensive game actually to build. I often think about this, you know, when we're kind of trying to figure out the art direction for a new project is, are we being different enough? Um, so having a unique style visually, I think is a huge, huge bonus for indie games that aren't competing at like high fidelity graphics. I mean, that is something that attracted me to Cardpocalypse, you know, back in the early days of arcade, it stood out to me. That's kind of going into like 90s cartoon, they're like oversaturated and like almost like garbage pail kids, monster design. We try and it's a game set in the 90s. So we, we went really hard on that. Do you remember the cartoon Doug? I don't know that one. I think that's what it was called. It, it reminded me a bit of a, of a cartoon I remember from the 90s. I'll figure it out, I'll send you after the show. I'd love to see that, yeah. We get like, fans now and again kind of send us stuff saying, hey, this character, so like Wolfgang is one of the characters uh, in the in Cartpocalypse, one of the dogs. They're like, hey, was this based on this specific variation of this anime I like? You know, one of the characters had this alternate armor that looks like it. And we were like, never heard of it. But when we had a look at it, we we're like, yeah, yeah, it, it is a bit like that. And you know why? Because they're both like extremely 90s looks. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it's kind of cool to hear, you know, when you're kind of plumbing the same space. Those cartoons were all plumbing that same space at the time as well. So of course. Right. And, and it's sort of our memory of these 90s cartoons is sort of abstracted. So I think it's easy to think something looks like that, even if it doesn't look that much like it. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. And we, we were trying to tap into that. You know, we're doing like the loud voiceover kind of rocky music. We did it quite well with Cartpocalypse to kind of capture that feeling without it needing to be, you know, for example, a fully animated cartoon. That's another thing actually that I think is good advice. It's kind of like, so Gilded Engineering, I think is a good example of this. It feels very alive. There's actually no real animation in the game. So, you know, you draw out little maps on a grid and you put down little kind of cardboard tokens. That's kind of what they look like. And they move and they respond and it's all quite nice, but none of them have animation. You know, it's not like an animated frame by frame animation of, you know, a monster fighting you. But because we've styled it like a pretend board game, that's totally fine. As a game maker at our level, I absolutely love when the game itself lets you cheat that way. Right. So you've picked a sort of metaphor. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Like the, the stylistic choices meant we had a far easier time. You know, we didn't have to animate our whole game. There's basically no animation in Gilded Engineering. Right. And why should it be? Because it's a drawing, right? It, it looks, the style is as a drawing. Yeah. And, you know, your character looks like a little cardboard token on a board game. And so does the monster. So, you know, they, they kind of move at each other and some icons fly, but they never animate. That meant it was possible, you know, early on for two people part-time to actually kind of hack it together. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great insight because I think folks who are listening and are maybe considering doing something like this can, can try to think of what's their version of that. Yeah, and it might might lead them to something novel that someone hasn't tried before. So, you know, limitations can be good for that. Well, what if we don't have X? You know, there's no monsters or there's no this. What if it was just walking around a forest? Or what if, you know, so like limitations can help you there as well. So let's talk a little bit about the publishing side as you're kind of getting ready to finish this. It sounds like, you know, how many had you sold as you're closing in? Let's say in the first six months of me having that site up and a playable version of the game, I ended up selling a few hundred copies. Wow. You know, at let's say $10 a go 
is a few thousand dollars. So, you know, that's not even, you know, a month or two of real salary of what I'd given up. But at the same time was huge because this was really janky demo and no release date in, in sight, you know, no real promises made. Just, yeah, I'll give you a copy of the game whenever I finish it. So it was incredibly motivating for me. And again, you know, we talked about this before about deadlines. For me, it was like, well, I owe these people a game now. Right. And this was before early access. So the, you know, people weren't accustomed to buying like that. I don't, I don't think. Yeah. I think it was Minecraft very early on. Minecraft was free. And what we now know as Minecraft was called survival mode. And you got that if you basically like sent $10 over. That was kind of why I was thinking, well, you know, if you ask for money, it's suddenly more serious. And when people put down money, then they were serious. And I felt like, well, I need to create a, a real game here. Yeah. Okay. So how did that transition to changes in your development or publishing like as you're getting ready to launch you know what started to happen steam greenlight started around that time when i started that project so about maybe a year into steam greenlight i put the game up on greenlight and got greenlit kind of around the time they started really increasing the amount of games they were putting through greenlight so we got approved for steam you know maybe a year before we launched and that felt good because at the time i was i was focused on on self-publishing and, you know, here's our game. Now we're allowed, you know, release it on Steam, which is kind of laughable to think about now. But at, at the time, 2013, 2014, just before that, let's say 2012, it was incredibly hard. You weren't allowed to release your game on Steam. And, you know, it was this huge marketplace and it made a huge difference then when that opened up. And um, so I managed that kind of on the back of just, I guess that we had polished our marketing a bit and convinced that what we were making was worthwhile enough for people to actually kind of pre-order. We put together a pretty good presentation get through green light though it was speeding up at the time it was definitely easier and i kind of moved from that to trying to get into free spaces at big game shows like pax but i didn't get into any most of those shows would have you know a few little free boots that they'd give to promising indies and i submitted for a few that summer right after we got greenlit kind of didn't get into any and i was like hmm, okay kind of think I need to be there to kind of get to the next level of reaching more people. PAX is perfect for you. Yeah. So that's when I reached out to publishers. So up until that point, I was like, yeah, we can kind of, you know, we can bootstrap this and you can get your game on Steam, but can you reach an audience? I don't know. I went shopping around for publishers and signed with Versus Evil, who at the time had essentially just published the Banner Saga, which was a big hit, but otherwise were just starting out their own kind of journey as a publisher. That negotiation was like the end of 2014 into the start of 2015. I basically, when I signed that, finally signed that deal with them, two weeks later, I flew to Texas to Pack South, where they had a big giant booth and we put our game up in it. And that, that's actually when I met them in person for the first time. So I'd done it all remotely. How did you zero in on, on them or ultimately choose them? Before I started looking, probably the only similar type of publisher I, I'd heard about was Devolver. But my usual approach is to kind of shop around and approach everyone. So I'd also recommend people do this when they're like looking for a job, for example, is go on lots of interviews because it's good practice. And so I did the same. I approached every single person who was in that kind of like, you know, not Sony, but like people publishing indie games. And I ended up pitching at the time, I think basically everyone that existed got far along with a couple and ended up going with versus evil. But when I started the process, I'd never even heard of them. It was kind of like, find all the companies that do this, look at what games they're doing, and then just pitch them. And the nice thing was, you know, I had my pitch ready because I had a playable version of the game that could just link to them. I had a video I'd made before. I had, you know, it had nice art. I had my marketing blurb because I'd done Steam Greenlight and I'd done, you know, my website to sell it. And I had sales numbers. I was like, look, 200 people have bought it already. And 
I had like some press already. So doing all this kind of like all that hard work for the previous year, year, year and a half had given me this like nice little pile of stuff to use for this kind of like, like business deal, basically. So that really helped me. I think that's a really important takeaway that even if you're planning to work with a publisher early on to start developing these assets, because they're only going to help you in those deals. Definitely. And you know, you need to make their job easy. They need to see why anyone should care about the game you're making. And so if you're taking pre-orders or if you're just looking for interest on it, like, you know, any kind of open development, like if you've made videos of what you made and there's enough people like viewing them or commenting on them, that's like your community that you're building up. And that's really, really good sign. If you then want to shop around to publishers, you, you need to point at all these things. Say, look, there's people who are into this, even though it's only this basic. Are there some other things for, let's say there, there are people out there listening who have a product are, you know, I don't know, somewhere between alpha and release and are, you know, kind of in this process, things that you that you wish you had known or would want to share with them now that you've been through it a couple times? Probably the hardest thing, and I don't know a way to make this better, but if you do go to a publisher, they want to know when your game will be ready. <laughs> and like, I don't know of anyone who's gotten this right. <laughs> Games are very hard to estimate because there's so much guesswork in the game design itself. I imagine even people who are making a very similar sequel to a game they previously made get this wrong. Because um, there's still always a lot of experimentation you know, build something, try it, possibly scrap it, build something else. If I had some magic time machine to tell me how long it would take us to make the game, that would certainly have helped me. But that's not realistic. That's not possible. Advice I always pass on is some of which we've already talked about, but like, don't be afraid to share what you're working on with people. It can be very tempting to feel like your idea is too precious to share. And I think that's a mistake, particularly a first time creator. You should actually share that before you start making it. You know, and you can do that in, you know, more limited ways, like go, going to local game, you know, game dev meetups is a really great way to get feedback on your idea because these are people who do this all the time. I remember for Gilded Engineering, I tweeted the idea and I think it was something like, uh, you know, an RPG where you don't control your hero, you build a map around them. And someone tweeted back saying, oh, that sounds cool. What game is that? You know, and I was like, oh, I haven't made it yet. It's just my idea. But that alone tells you, okay. Maybe that is worth pursuing. It's feedback. And I, th you know, I think those things are connected. Yeah. So getting used to getting feedback. I think there's a connection between people underestimating the amount of work to produce and overestimating the value of the idea and wanting to hold it tight. Yeah, it's true. And I understand why you can end up like that as well. You know, because you, before you actually go through the hard work of making, you know, the slog of execution of an idea, the idea is precious because it's the thing that's making you want to do the slog. You know, and I talked about this earlier, you're also, you know, your idea, particularly the bare bones prototype version of that idea, do not match up with other people's finished creations. So you're embarrassed of your idea or your prototype. That's completely natural. And you have to force yourself to get over that. Colm, I think we could do, I feel like we are halfway through what I would like to talk to you about, because I think there's a lot to say about Apple Arcade and, and your second release. And I think that would be very interesting. But I would love to just use our last few minutes and really whatever way you think is most useful for the audience or if there's anything you want to share. And then, you know, we'll get this out. And then maybe maybe if you're interested, we could do it again um, and kind of do what I feel like is the second half of your story that we didn't we just weren't able to get to. Yeah, no worries. We were really focused on the early stuff, but it is really interesting. And I think there is a lot of people in the same space that I was back then. I think it is interesting that in our follow up project, 
Cardpocalypse, we started, I actually hired extra people. We started with five people full time, which for me at the time was a big team. And then we worked in secret. So it was, it was really different to what I'd done with Gilded Engineering, which was me solo part time and sharing everything like oversharing. We worked on the game for nine months before we announced it. You know, five people full time that that, you know, in person months, that might be the entire development time of Gilded Engineering getting from idea to release. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it was it's it's the idea that, you know, once you get a certain level of you know, a certain bit of following or fan base. We didn't want to go back to kind of the like really janky homemade, like first prototype approach. Though I've seen other people do it. And that time when we were working in secret was actually quite frustrating for me because I actually prefer being open about projects. You know, I, li- I like going on Twitter and sharing like a hilarious bug in our, in our game or some weird silly thing I've found. But if you're working in secret because you're trying to make, you know, make a bigger launch, like make a a reveal or an announcement, which has value, it's kind of a frustrating way of working for me. So I'm actually doing that right now. We have we have an announcement two days after we record this. Um, probably by the time this is out, it'll be done. I'm really looking forward to it because it will be back to, well, now I can just, sh- you know, go back to oversharing, which I love doing. That'll be great for the next time we chat. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's kind of back to m- my personality. I think it's similar for a lot of creators is those little bits of feedback are huge encouragement points that you are working on something that somebody may care about. And that's a real fear that you're making something that everyone will hate. You know, I hear about this in every kind of medium, you know, writers, anyone getting over the hump and actually sharing like rough prototypes really helps you get that feedback that you're like, you know, you're thinking, yes, someone will care about this. Someone's looking forward to this. That's a really good feeling. How did you weigh that up for Cardpocalypse and decide to take that other path? Guess because we'd gone, we'd worked with the publisher, we'd done a you know big, tr- more traditional launch. You know, we had stopped. For example, as soon as I signed with the publisher, I stopped sharing that that playable build. That was their their idea, and it, it did actually mean when we launched, there were people looking forward to where the game was at. So we kind of kind of took from that and kind of went for a more traditional approach. Where when we did reveal, you know, that it was Cardpocalypse, and the look was the Cardpocalypse look that launched. You know, we had the the song, we had cool animation that you know meant we were showing final level of polish when we started showing it well but you're revealing again for the next one right yeah and we've we've been working in secret on it this is a bit more going back to our roots so it's gonna be fun very cool and do you think that the reveal well let me ask you this did cardpocalypse reveal as an apple arcade title no 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 so it was more just that Gambrinus as a studio was making a new game and it was called Cardpocalypse and we had a first trailer. No, we, were, we weren't allowed to say we were on Apple Arcade until they eventually said it. You know, Apple, Apple are a very secretive company. I think they launched with almost 100 games and ever, everyone was in the same situation. You weren't, you weren't allowed to say, you know, you weren't allowed to say Apple Arcade was a service because, you know, all these games were signed well before it was announced to anyone. And then you weren't allowed to say you were going to be on Apple Arcade until they said it. And they were, you know, they weren't working with us to, to make that announcement. They just did it on their own time. So a very Apple way of doing things. I remember at the time being very excited about Apple Arcade as this possibly novel way of experiencing games. They talked a very big talk around, you know, offering a service that was very different to the kind of way you, you played on, on mobile at the time, looking for deeper games, looking for narrative games like ours. I'm, I'm not sure they delivered on that in the end. Like if you look at Apple Arcade games and compare it to the Apple TV originals, 
and the way they showcase the, you know, the creators and actors involved compared to some of the games in arcade or, you know, from really, really well-known game creators. And they've never really like showcased that side of it. Yeah, well, I, I would love to get into that. Let's get into that next time we talk because I'm, <laughs> I'm very interested in Apple Arcade and your experience. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a lot there. Apple Arcade as a, you know, a deal for us and for Carpocalypse was really good. Well, congratulations on everything you've, you've accomplished. You know, I think it's an amazing story and I think you're an amazing guy. And I think your games are absolutely incredible. And I can't wait to find out what you're announcing next. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, it's fun coming up on six years next month since we launched Gilded Engineering. That's kind of cool. Well, thanks for coming on, and hopefully we can have you on again soon without three years going between <laughs> between <laughs> it. Too. Some new things to talk about. Thanks, Colm. Catch you on the next one. Thanks, Jordan. Another episode of Playmakers Podcast is in the bag, and if you want the show notes with all the links wrapped up with a bow for you, you can find all that at playmakerspodcast.com. That's playmakerspodcast.com. If you're interested in giving some feedback on what you'd like to see on future episodes, you can also reach out to me there. And in the meantime, if you want to support what we do, the way to do that is to write us a review and subscribe. I will see you on the next episode. We have some great stuff coming your way. So I will catch you then on Playmakers.